Welcome to Asked and Answered Podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie Francis Ward. This year, the ABA Journal is celebrating its centennial, and a lot has changed in the field of legal reporting over the past hundred years. I have two guests joining me today to talk about how the relationship between the courts and the media has been affected by the internet and the social media era. Our first guest is Linda Greenhouse, who has reported on the U.S. Supreme Court for the New York Times since 1978 and is now a senior research scholar and lecturer at Yale Law School. Also joining me is Jonathan Turley, a professor at George Washington Law School who has acted as a legal analyst for many media outlets. He most recently made news for agreeing to be lead counsel in the House of Representatives suit challenging President Obama's executive actions in the Affordable Care Act. My first question uh, for you, Linda, do you think the U.S. Supreme Court will allow cameras in their courtroom anytime soon? I don't, actually. Uh, Justice David Souter once said the cameras would roll in over his dead body, and of course he's no longer at the court, but he's very much alive. And I, I actually uh, think it's going to be a very long time. And Jonathan, what do you think? Well, I would agree with that. I, I, both of us have, have spoken with members of the court, and they are fairly adamant about not wanting cameras. I don't consider that to be a particularly material issue, the level of support of these given justices. I believe this is something that should be resolved by Congress. You know, the framers were great believers in technology. These were people of uh, great scientific interest. I think that most of them would have been delighted by the notion that the public could witness arguments. After all, the idea of a public trial and public uh, proceedings is captured within the Constitution. So I think it's, it's silly, and I think it's equally silly for justices to threaten that they will leave the court. I hate to see any of them leave, but that is completely immaterial to me. I think Congress should simply order this level of transparency. Another question on that note, given how we use social media now to get information out about Supreme Court um, opinions, do we even need cameras in the courtroom? Well, I'm, I'm happy to address that, Stephanie, and also to push back a little on, on Jonathan's attitude. Uh, I'm, I'm really agnostic on the cameras issue, but I don't think the objection to it is silly, and I think some of our social media experience underscores why it's not silly. Let me offer an example. Uh, during the Affordable Care Act argument in the Sebelius case two years ago, uh, People probably remember that Solicitor General Don Verrilli choked while taking a bad sip of water as he got up to the podium to begin his argument on behalf of the government. And that little audio snippet was replayed by the Republican National Committee on ads all over the radio and, and on the Internet with the little message that, see, even... President Obama's Solicitor General chokes up as he tries to, de- to defend the Affordable uh. Care Act, right? And when, when I saw that happen, I thought, okay, this really sets back the cause of uh, live audio or let alone television of the Supreme Court by probably by a generation. I mean, the, the, the Supreme Court is, in fact, open to the public. Of course, there aren't very many seats and people have to stand in line. But the, it, it's actually not correct to, to hold up cameras versus lack of transparency. Uh, the court puts up the 
transcripts of the argument within these days, uh, a morning argument when you come back from lunch, the transcript is up. The audio is on the court's website by the end of every week during which arguments are held. Uh, so, you know, we could all wish that we could get our little, our little snippets and our little sound bites, but, um, but I, I think it, it's something that merits more discussion than just a flip kind of, oh, they're being silly. Well, I, I, I just wanted to respond to that. Um, first, I wasn't being flip about uh, the merits of it. I was being flip about justices saying that they would re- would retire if they were allowed in the courtroom. But um, I've covered the Supreme Court for two networks, CBS and uh, uh, and NBC, and um, it is it's absurd. You know, we, we and, and the Bush v. Gore decision. We had the scene of people, you know, running out uh, to report every uh, change, their thing they saw within the courtroom. Uh, there's no reason for it, in my view. But more importantly, this is a court that I don't think is helped by the insularity. You know, we've seen justices who have left the court, notably after they gave interviews where they uh, were exposed, quite frankly, to the public as having highly diminished. Uh, cognitive abilities. Uh, I'm thinking of Thurgood Marshall and William Brennan as good example. Uh, I'm not just I'm not Brennan. Uh, Douglas as examples of that. Uh, there is a value uh, to uh, the public seeing these justices and for justices to be seen. Uh, I don't buy this idea that you know we we need to protect people from choking on water. I, I find that rather silly. I think the the public value of being able to witness these arguments instead of the artificiality of people standing in lines for hours and hearing it secondhand. Um, that is silly. All right. Well, and on that note, I'm curious what you both think about has the bench, when I say the bench, I mean the judiciary in general, do you think how they interact with the press when we're covering uh, their proceedings, has that changed over the years? What do you think, Linda? No, I don't think it's changed very much. I think there's a wide variety. You know, there's almost a thousand federal judges and obviously many more than that on, on the state courts. And, uh, and each one is an individual. And some, in my experience, some judges have been very press friendly or even sometimes aggressively so. Uh, and others, uh, you know, never want to interact with the media in any way, shape, or form, and mm-hmm. I think that's always been the case, and you know, probably always will be. Do you feel the same way about lawyers and how they interact with uh, reporters covering them? Yeah, in, in my time covering the court, I saw a huge increase in effort by lawyers with cases before the court, or lawyers who hope to have cases before the court, um, doing a kind of push media. It used to be you get back from a decision or or an argument, and you'd have um, a pile of, uh, you know, voicemail messages or, or a pile of faxes. And then, of course, uh, once the Internet and email came in, uh, you'd be flooded with, uh, you know, talk to this expert at the law firm or you know, all, all this kind of stuff. And, you know, some of it's useful, much of it isn't, but it, it certainly reflects the notion that uh, law practice today really involves cultivating and maintaining some kind of public profile in contrast to, I think, a much more discreet age uh, in the in the not-too-distant past. 
How do you think, as you said, uh, we all probably get a ton of emails from people who would love to be a source for us. Normally, those emails come after our stories are published, I've noticed, on my end at least. How can lawyers, if they want to be a good source, do you have like one tip, Linda, about how they can be a good source for journalists and get called repeatedly? Oh, that's a good question. I think somebody's got to have real expertise and have... Be, be willing to go beyond the obvious take on an event. Really provide added value because that's what's really necessary. I mean, to step back a little bit uh, and, and, and look more globally at our subject, I think what the era of social media and the pervasive Internet demands of every participant in the system uh, a measure of added value because the public can go on the internet and you know go on Wikipedia and learn this that and the other thing. And so, uh, as I saw this happening during my career covering the Supreme Court, I had to ask myself, uh, you know, my readers can go on the court website and they can, thanks to the American Bar Association, read all the merits briefs in every granted case. They can read the transcripts. Uh, you know, what do I bring to this? And so. Anybody who could help me bring a a wider context or a deeper understanding beyond the obvious would be somebody that I'd I'd welcome uh, talking to. And you mentioned with the Internet. Jonathan, how do you think the Internet has changed legal affairs writing, perhaps both in how it's done and how it is ingested or taken in by the public? Well, it's certainly faster. You know, there's a great complaint about the impact of uh, the internet on uh, print. I, I remember I was with David Savage on a panel years ago, and he had this great line that he was a three-time loser because his uh, grandfather was a steel worker and his father was a coal miner, and he writes for a newspaper. Uh, as this idea of a failing industry. I'm not too sure I agree with that. It's a changing industry, and those changes actually I represent opportunities for attorneys. There's a, there's a greater number of voices that are uh, being heard. Uh, some of them are not particularly useful. Many of them are. Uh, there are a great number of legal blogs, and I have to hand it to the ABA Journal. They have spent a lot of effort in uh, highlighting some of the new blogs, and many of those sites um, are are quite good. Uh, and so I think there we should is, mention that your blog is usually part of our blog 100, or it is always part of our blog 100, right? <laughs> yes, we, we yes. were very happy to make your <laughs> Hall of Fame, I think, a, a year ago right. or so. Uh, that's but, Reese Ipsa Lockwitter. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> that's right. And um, it's, it, it, I'm, I'm always impressed with the ABA competition and looking at all of the blogs and how very good they are. Uh, So it has changed legal writing in the sense that it has expanded the number of voices. It has also made it a lot faster, and that's changed a lot. I write for USA Today on legal issues, and it has changed a great deal. You know, I I started writing regularly for papers like the New York Times and and, uh, back in the the sort of, uh, you know, pony whip days. And it was very, very different. Uh, you know, today you will go to the internet almost immediately. 
Uh, and that that gives you certain advantages. When I was writing primarily for LA Times, it was a killer because it would come out, you would be able to file later, but you know, there'd be a long delay in, in, in when people would see your piece on some case uh, or legal issue. Uh, now you, you get put up pretty quickly and you join that debate. Uh, but that also adds, obviously, a great deal of pressure. You have to write faster, and there's a uh, greater opportunity for error. Uh, there's also been a complaint among many people writing in the field that they don't have as much time to do uh, more substantive uh, work. And I think that is a legitimate concern. Uh, there is pressure to get it on the website. Uh, I just literally, a few minutes before this call, uh, finished a column, and they're putting it on the web. Uh, as, as we speak. Uh, and so it's, it's very fast now. All right. We're going to take a short break to hear from our sponsor, and we'll be back with our guests, Linda Greenhouse and Jonathan Turley. This ABA Journal podcast is brought to you by Westlaw Next. Folder sharing on Westlaw Next enables you to tap into previous research across organizational boundaries like never before, saving you time from reinventing the wheel. Learn more at westlawnext.com. And we're back. I'm Stephanie Francis-Ward, and you're listening to Asked and Answer. Joining me today are Linda Greenhouse and Jonathan Turley. Have journalists changed their ethical standards over the years, specifically in regards to covering legal issues? Well, I do think that this change of technology is changing the definition of a journalist. And with it, it's changing the dimensions of journalism. And that is creating uh, some practice issues, some ethics issues. It's also creating some legal issues. As you know, uh, courts continue to struggle uh, with who is a journalist uh, and whether bloggers would be included in that definition. Uh, But part of that debate uh, does go to the different standards that apply to people who write for newspapers uh, and people who have simply blogs. I mean, the column I just filed, you know, 30 minutes ago had to go through fact checkers. Uh, so I gave them an earlier draft and it's carefully vetted. Uh, that's not the case with many blogs. So many blogs are treated as, as a type of ongoing conversation. Uh, the sources are not normally vetted. Uh, and also the influences on the writer are not always revealed. So that that has been a point of tension with many journalists who feel the pressure from bloggers and feel that they are under much higher standards and limitations as they try to work in this environment. But do you think maybe that's a symptom of the profession? As I will admit, sometimes we have pretty healthy egos and there's this drive to be first. And when it comes down to it, I mean, the pressure is for us to do our best job we possibly can, not to worry about others, do what we can do. I I do think that there still remains a qualitative difference between folks that write for major newspapers, and I would also say for major blogs, uh, uh, and those that write for a, the great variety of other blogs. You know, you do see a quality difference that uh, you see a lot of stuff that gets thrown up on blogs that is not true, uh, that has not really been sourced or checked. And that creates all this fog of confusion as people try to sort through what are reliable sources. I think eventually that this is going to settle down a bit. I think that the industry is changing. That is, to, that is uh, 
quite certain. I think print uh, is having a serious time in terms of making uh, the financial aspects of this work. But I think eventually we're going to hit an equilibrium point on all of these issues. Okay. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, people will learn uh, what are the reliable sources of information, and those are the ones they'll return to. Or, uh, you know, if you just want to be entertained, I mean, there are things that I look at, you know, in the idle moment at my computer just because I want a little break and I think it would be fun and I don't really care about the accuracy of it. It's just, uh, you know, a way of getting a few minutes of amusement. Right. I do um, think that there's another aspect of that that sort of builds on what, what Linda said is that there is this growth of sites and even cable stations that are sort of echo chambers for just one view. And Linda had, has had a wonderful career, as has others like Lyle Dennison, of, of really a standard of care and professionalism uh, in writing, uh, great reliability. I, I think that the problem is that we have the rise of so many blogs and sites that hammer away at just one perspective. And you see how distortive that becomes, uh, that they, they look at facts and they really mutate them, including case decisions. I wrote a column recently criticizing sites on the left and the right uh, for their response to the Hall-Big-King decisions. These are decisions in the D.C. Circuit and the Fourth Circuits that came out differently uh, on the ACA, on the health care issue. And what disturbed me is how many of them immediately looked at who appointed the judges and basically portrayed the judges as being ideologues who were following predictable patterns. When you read the opinions, that's simply not true, that these courts, both of, both of those decisions were very well written and were based in longstanding jurisprudential views. And I think you see more of that type of cheap shot that comes out of uh, the new media. Well, I think, you know, one thing that's very useful about the online environment is uh, presumably those, those columns or blogs or whatever they were included links where the reader could click and, and read the opinion, uh, you know, for himself or, or herself. And, and the column that I write, the opinion column that I write now, uh, twice a month for the Times website, I put in all the, all the links and I find it a very good discipline if I'm making a reference to something that I read online or some piece of video that somebody posted, I'll, I will link to that. I really almost never make a factual assertion in the column, which I emphasize is an opinion column, but, any, but it's a fact-based opinion column, I like to think. Uh, so any factual assertion I make, I, I provide a link, and people can go as deeply as they might care to, and I actually really like that aspect of it. So that includes your link to opinions, right? Yeah, if I'm if I'm making something of, you know, this person said this or whatever. Uh, oh, you know, I, 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 okay. You know, I let the reader I, in on my own right. sources. I see, I see, and, and I would imagine readers really appreciate that as well because I think so many times when you're reading an article about a case, you think, "Gosh, I'd love to read this opinion," and then you Google it. But if it's in, if it's in the article, I think that's quite useful. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I just sent a column into my editor a few minutes before we started recording this show, uh, also as as Jonathan did uh, about last week's argument, Supreme Court argument in the pregnancy discrimination case, and 
uh, you know, I put in links to the argument transcript and to the briefs and so on, so that uh, if people's interest is piqued by various factual assertions in the column, they can click and see what they think themselves. I see. Right. A question for the two of you. Would you say the profession has become more diverse over the years in terms of covering legal issues? And if so, has that changed um, our storytelling process and the information that gets out when, we're, when we publish our, our work? Well, I think as Johnson said earlier, there certainly are more voices and more outlets. And, you know, there are websites and blogs that deal with, you know, certain state and local courts, and that would have been a really expensive venture to maintain in the, in the print world. Um, so if that's the kind of thing you mean, I, I, I think... And then there's somebody like, you know, Doug Berman with his uh, sentencing blog or Rick Hayson with his election law blog. So these individuals who are law professors couldn't have maintained that kind of, uh, you know, communication with a very interested audience without the social media online environment. All right. If someone, if a young person is interested in getting um, in legal journalism, Linda, what advice would you have for them? I'm actually asked that quite often by young people, and what I tell them is they have to be prepared to be very nimble, very flexible, uh, be able to do their writing across many platforms, and I think it's a, it's an exciting field, but a, but a tough one to make a living at, actually. Jonathan, would you add anything to that? Well, I think that part of this brave new world that we see in the Internet is in fact the opportunity for folks that want to be heard on these issues. And I think that it's a a great change. It used to be that a relatively small number of people uh, would write regularly on legal stories, and they were quite good and quite talented and quite informative. But we're seeing a difference now where more people can be heard, and the marketplace is elevating some voices over others. Uh, and so I think that, that young lawyers have the greatest opportunity they've ever had uh, to, be, to be heard. I think one of the changes, and I think this is highlighted in Linda's last remark about not making much money at it, is that you're going to see more people doing legal reporting as a secondary job. Uh, that's, I think, the greatest change that we're seeing. That is, you're, you're, you, you see people like me that have multiple jobs. I litigate, I teach, and I also, you know, write uh, for the newspaper and, and also on a blog. And I think you're going to find more multitasking lawyers in that sense. I, I, I think that's a good thing. Now, there are challenges there. You know, just this week we saw a decision that above the law um, will have to uh, go to court on a defamation case. There's issues as to how much coverage uh, insurance uh, uh, policies have for blogs. Uh, there's also that question of whether bloggers are journalists, although, you know, this year the Ninth Circuit in the Obsidian Finance case uh, said that bloggers were journalists. Uh, we also have a recent decision on New Zealand saying that. Um, but there are some legal perils there that people need to be cognizant of. They are, in fact, publishing uh, work that others could view as uh, defamatory. And that's everything I have for the two of you today. I'm Stephanie Francis Ward, and thank you so much for joining us on the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered. 
This ABA Journal podcast is brought to you by Westlaw Next, powered by WestSearch, the world's most advanced legal search engine delivering the best results in seconds. Learn more at westlawnext.com.